Hello and welcome to the BRFCS podcast. This is a packed episode, we're really spoiling you this time. We have an interview with Radio Lancashire presenter Andy Bays. We have an interview with the new 442 magazine editor Connor Pope. And we also have a slot from our Canadian correspondent Bill Arthur, who reminisces about the difficulties in getting football scores when you're far away from home. It's my great pleasure to welcome a special guest tonight. It's a, a real live professional broadcaster. We have Radio Lancashire presenter Andy Bays with us. Andy, welcome to the pod. How was the show this evening? It was varied, to say the least, at Rugby Union for an hour. I did a, an hour on um, dementia last night, and I'll look back at the weekend's action the night before. So it, it's a job that I love in largely because every day is completely different, and um, I, I love doing it. What was it about a, a career in radio journalism in particular that first appealed to you? Uh, largely, my teachers at school told me I never shut up, so um, that that was a good idea that I could, might be able to get paid for talking. Um, and I love talking about football, and that's all I did at school, um, as some of my um, GCSE grades might prove. Actually, that if I concentrate <laughs> a bit more on them rather than football and talking, then um, then I might have done a bit better. Were you one of those people that commentated when you played sports? Yourself. No, yeah. never. I've got I'm, never. I was one it, of those. It, if I was kicking the football round in the playground, it was. Uh, I, I was probably David Coleman or Brian Moore. I think with my uh, oh. with the people that were influential to me. Who, who are you? One nil. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the Col- Coleman's one nil. I think is an all time classic. It's 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 one of those iconic uh, sound bites that you get. Who were your sports radio idols? Whose work is it that you most admire? Well, my, my favourite commentator is Barry Davis from, from the television. Um, so versatile, a fantastic voice, um, not afraid to give his opinion on what he's seeing as well. I remember John Motson at the time, he, he didn't really offer too much of an opinion, whereas Barry Davis would always tell us if it was the worst possible game he, he's ever seen and, and that sort of thing. And always give an opinion on a tackle if someone was sent off and he'd, he'd give his take on the referee's display as well as the team's. And I love Barry Davis. I love Brian Moore as well. Uh, just an iconic voice growing up. Um, I love Peter Jones on Radio yes. 2. Um, yes. And his work, I mean, it sounds really awful to say, actually, but but his most poignant work was probably Hillsborough, which it wasn't a football match, but he was on air for hour on hour on hour describing what must have been the most horrendous scene and uh, unfortunately, I think Peter Jones, is, is, his life didn't last too much longer after Hillsborough. And, and he was such a loss to broadcasting, I, I, I've always felt. But a fantastic voice and, and a brilliant broadcaster. Yeah, there's something about the theme music as well, I think. with uh, Well, of course, when it used to be Sport on 2 on a Saturday, and yeah. his, his voice would be the one that you'd hear. And then uh, there, there's something very, very reassuring about his tones. I think he's very much so. One of those that again will, will will last and linger long in the memory. I tell you who else as well, actually, Ian. Um, Elton Wellsby, who used to do kickoff, of I course, know, back yes. in the Granada yes. region, and and was one of my colleagues at Century Radio years ago. So I actually got to work with Elton for a couple of years, and and he was such a great character. He was. Um, Still very much a professional when he, he left Granada Television and worked in radio. And um, he, he was actually a, a pleasure to work with and, and someone who I'd spent years watching on the TV and in one of my first ever jobs in the real world to, to work with Elton on a Saturday afternoon was, was always interesting, to say the least. Well, I can throw an interest, well, hopefully interesting anecdote into the mix. I remember um, way back in the late 70s when Rovers were managed by Howard Kendall and ITV had the... Um, 
the contract for Saturday Night Highlights. They just gained it. So Granada's programme was the big match, and it was presented yeah. by Elton Wellesby. And I think they, they struggled, I think it's fair to say, early on with some of the production values. Uh, and, and I wrote a typical sort of teenage stroppy letter to them saying, you yeah, know, this is appalling. You spelt Blackburn Rovers wrong on the league table and stuff like that. <laughs> and do, do you remember uh, Peter Doherty, who was head of sport at Granada at the time? He he wrote back sort of saying, you're absolutely right. You we're bang to rights. Why don't you come in when there's a recording? So I actually went, I was sat in the studio one night for a recording of the programme and met Elton and had photographs taken. And Ray Clements was the studio guest. So it was uh, it was a really really wonderful gesture by them I thought but he, he was he was ever so nice he was he made me feel really really at home so yeah I think he only passed away last year Paul Doherty and he, he was very he very well respected um, worked very closely with with a pal of mine Alan Nixon who was part yes. of it back then as well yes. yeah. um, and who is is just an oracle of, of the football league who I enjoy sitting with on regular occasions at football matches and and chewing the fat with. Well known to Rovers uh, fans, I think he, he used to come on our forums quite a lot, but certainly on Twitter he has a, he has a devoted following, I think it's fair Doesn't to he? say. So what, in your career, what's, what's the most enjoyable thing that you've done in radio so far? It's a really difficult one because I've been so, so, so lucky Ian, to, to do the job that I've done, um, to go straight from university pretty much to go to work for Century Radio where um, I I worked on a football programme every night called the Legends Football Phone-In with Alan Kennedy, Mickey Thomas, Graham Sharp and Gary Owen and we had the best time every night, two hours a night. It was a a phone-in show and it was just fantastic to work on and at that time I was covering games um, involving Manchester City in what was the old third tier and and Champions League semi-finals. I'll never forget the night Liverpool beat Chelsea on their way to win the 2005 Champions League final. They're, they're memories that'll all stick with me. And, and it's only now, you know, 14 years on that you look back at nights like that and think, I never actually appreciated it for what it was. I probably yeah. always thought that's what my career will be like every night. And um, maybe at times when I've been at other grounds with about three other people at, I thought, where did it all go wrong? But um, it, 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 it hasn't been like that at all. Um, I, I'm, I consider myself so privileged to do the job that I do, to, to be paid to watch football for a living largely is what I do. Um, I would actually have to say, and even though it it, it counts as broadcasting but not radio, um, I was at Ewood Park for the Hall of Fame dinner um, and I was given the the job of hosting, co-hosting the Hall of Fame dinner at Ewood Park very recently uh, where it was my role to interview everybody from Brian Douglas to Derek Fazakali, Alan Shearer, Simon Garner, Brad Friedel. Um, Mrs. Val Clayton, the, the yes. wife of, of Ron and uh, yeah. Bob Crompton's grandson. And that for me was just as brilliant a night as going to an England international, a playoff final or a Champions League semi-final. I, I could not have enjoyed the evening more. It was fabulous. Yeah, I saw the cast list for that, and you saw thinking, crikey, what, what a tremendous assemblage it is of, of Rover's talent and obviously some great memories. But to see um, one of my personal heroes, Brad Friedel, back back in Blackburn was, was tremendous, and obviously Alan Shearer. Because I think Shearer is, is, in the media certainly, he seems to be portrayed as former Newcastle United legend, and everybody seems to forget <laughs> that he won the title with Blackburn Rovers. How do you find him when you, when you talk to him and chat to him? 
Charming. Absolutely charming company. Um, Alan Shearer is such a famous man that he arrived at Ewood Park and he was walking up the stairs and I, and I was saying to him, you'll, you'll just have to do an interview here and then there's three television networks waiting to speak to you in the next room and, and then someone else would like a photograph and then this would happen. And Alan Shearer just looked at me and he went, yeah, no problem. That's fine. That, that's absolutely yeah. fine. Uh, stayed for the whole evening. Um, was absolutely brilliant on the stage reflecting on his time as a Blackburn Rovers player he could not have been more accommodating to everybody in that room who wanted a selfie or a shirt signed or or anything he was absolutely brilliant and Brad Friedel I would have to say Ian is in in almost 20 years of doing the job that I've been doing Brad Friedel is right up there with one of the nicest people in football you will ever meet brilliant guy He's somebody I'd love to see back at Rovers in some capacity in the future, I have to say. He's, um, I know he's managing with New England Revolution right now, and if he makes a, a decent fist of that, you would imagine that there will be some clubs in Europe and, and maybe even in, in Britain, so they're looking at him. So, yeah, lovely, lovely guy. Who's the, who's the best manager that you've interviewed, and who's the best player that who or the best interview that you've had with a player or a manager? I would always say um, Alex Ferguson is the one who scared the life out of me the most. That's an, an absolute certainty um, that he started tapping on his watch in the very first time I'd ever met him, and he asked me how long this interview was <laughs> going to go on for. And he, I, I left the room a, a bit of a quivering wreck and um, said to my boss, I will never, ever, ever go back and interview him again. Please don't make me do that. Uh, the week later, uh, I was made to go and do it again and I had to knock on Alex Ferguson's office door. That's how different it was back then. And yeah. we're only talking 16, 17 years ago yeah. that you would walk up the stairs at, at the training ground at Manchester United and knock on the manager's door and go and do an interview with him, and he could not have been better. He was an absolutely different fella to the one who was there the week before. Which, um, but but the best, I would say, by by some distance, Ian, is Graham Sooners. Absolutely no question about it. Uh, I, I was a really young reporter um, who interviewed him on a number of occasions at, at Blackburn Rovers for my former radio station, Century, and Graham Sooners could hold a room to account if you ever stepped out of line graham sooners could let you know and he could not have been better with me he understood i think that that i was probably the youngest person in the room by some distance and he had so many occasions where he could have attempted to destroy me being at that age and he never did and he was always absolutely brilliant he would always make sure you left the press conference with what we call a line but it wouldn't be a line it'd be 20 different lines he'd tell you so many different things he has this aura about him and he still has it today he does graham sooners yes that um and and as luck had it when he left blackburn to go and manage newcastle um because i worked at century radio at the time we had a, a century radio in newcastle and I got into work one Monday morning and my boss said to me, guess what? You're going up to cover Newcastle every week, every home game, every away game from now on. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And, um, you know, Graham Sooners is obviously the manager. He's been there a week. And your job now is to uh, spend some of your week in the northeast, some of it in the northwest, but make sure you're at every Newcastle game home and away. And you get on well with the manager already, so that won't be a problem. And... Um, he, he could not, again, could not have been better. I've probably seen him three or four times in the last 10 years. And every time you see him, he goes out of his way and says, how are you? How's the family? And, you know, little things like that people yeah. don't 
realize but but for me as a reporter um i realize it more and more particularly when i get older that if a if a football manager has gone to the trouble of knowing what your name is means a lot to me i know their name so if i'm going to see them on a regular basis it'd be nicer than you mind so you, you've done quite well here because um i i had a little google before we started chatting and found a 2006 profile on the uh, the radio lancashire website it's been archived but you can, still going you can find it on google and if anybody <laughs> wants to see the photograph of the 13 year old andy bays then uh, just just google his name and um in the in the profile uh, it's a best and worst manager in post-match interview was one of the questions and back then you said Graham Souness so even Mm. in the intervening years there's nobody come along to trump Souness's position then but can you remember or has it changed who your worst interview was you put three the, the names ones, down, so you can... Did <laughs> I? Uh, is Steve Cotterell one? No, no. Really? R- well, right well, club, different manager. Yeah, um, Stan Turnant, my That's uncle. the one. <laughs> and, and do you know what? I, I was I was with Stan on Sunday night this week for a, a benefit dinner for Len John Rose. Um, yes. Stan was a, a complete one-off in terms of a manager. Uh, when Stan didn't want to be interviewed, uh, he would make that very, very clear. Um but he was absolutely brilliant, brilliant entertainment on, on Sunday um, at, at what was a, a fabulous fundraising evening for Len. And um, Stan might have been, as a young reporter, a difficult man to interview at times, but um, he's had a horrendous uh, six months or so. He's lost his wife and his son in yes, the last six months. Yes, and f- for him to come to Turf Moor last Sunday probably took a lot for him to be in a lot of company. But when he got on the stage, the the adulation from a lot of Burnley fans in the room, and I know this is a Rovers podcast, but I won't apologise for it, um, that he was absolutely brilliant. So um, if I was doing that again now, I don't think he'd be on there, no. Well, we, we always acknowledge the existence of our uh, our close Lancashire, uh, shall we say, friends, as, as much as anything else. Now, that leads me on quite nicely. I believe it's, it's probably an open secret that you're a, a Preston North End supporter. How easy is it to <laughs> remain neutral when it's your team that's involved? Oh, it's, it's a brilliant question. I told you on email, didn't I? You I did? thought it was a brilliant question. <laughs> uh, it's a brilliant question because my first season ticket was in 1988 at Blackburn Rovers, and I've never <laughs> had one anywhere else. I have never <laughs> once had a season ticket at Preston North End. Um, I have been a Blackburn Rovers fan since my friends David and Martin Atkins took me to start watching in the mid to late 80s. And I have had labelled at me that I'm a Preston North End fan on many occasions. This isn't the first, Ian. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got I've got loads of affection for Preston North End. And, and Rovers fans might think, what is he on about? I've got loads of affection for them. I, I was brought up in between Preston and Blackburn in a place called Horton. Loads of people will tell you that it's probably about the same distance from from Horton to Deepdale as it is to Ewood Park. Some people turned right, some people turned left. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when Rovers were away and I couldn't get to an away game at Rovers, I'd go and watch North End with my North End supporting mates yeah. because I just wanted to watch football. And when they were promoted under Simon Grayson a couple of years ago, or maybe more now, it's coming up four years this summer, um, it was a brilliant day and I was delighted to be there to do the commentary on it. Um, I've loads of affection for them. I'll be honest with you. I don't dislike Burnley. I don't. I, I have no dislike for football teams. I love my team, but I don't dislike any others. And I just like watching football. I, I maybe dislike Manchester United in the mid '90s, but I'm kind of getting over that now because because I'm 40 in a couple of months. So I, I don't. I don't really 
see any point whatsoever in disliking other teams. I'm, I'm more than happy to put my energies in, into liking my team. Uh, and Blackburn Rovers has been my team as as long as I can remember and, and always will be. And, um, and I, I've been through thick and thin watching them. Um, when I got the job at Radio Lancashire in 2006, they qualified for Europe in the first six months. And I'm thinking, happy days, here we go. And uh, in my time at the helm, they've been down two divisions. So um, I don't know whose fault that is. Well, there's a nasty correlation there. Go on, we'll believe you then. You sounded uh, quite sincere. Uh, but I, I think, it, as you said, I say, there's a number of people that have teased you over the years. And I think it's, uh, it's the, the, whenever there's a photograph of you commentating at <laughs> deep detail, there will be people that sort of take the test. But it's good to put the record straight, I think. That's, that's oh, it's brilliant. It, it's it's hilarious. I, when when I was sent the question, I had a, I had a lovely little chuckle to myself. And, um, and my, my Rover supporting friends, and actually my North End supporting friends, would find it hilarious that that people would think that that I'm a Preston North End fan. But I, I, as I say, I've got absolutely nothing against them. And if, if they're not playing Rovers, I want them to win. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suppose being a presenter on Radio Lancashire as well, yeah, you, you do have a duty to uh, to be even handed across the piece. Hundred percent. So uh, yeah, to, yeah. totally. Understood. A very professional answer, May I Congratulate you on that. You've you, <laughs> you've trod the eggshells quite beautifully. Thank you. So, with, with regards to Radio Lancashire, then, um, you know, he, here we are, <laughs> PRFCS podcast. The digital world has opened up lots and lots of challenges, and there's lots of people that are producing content these days. What, what do you? What's your view on the internet? Is it how positive, how negative, and, and what's Radio Lancashire's place in that digital world? Well, we we do an awful lot on social media these days um we we've got a very talented videographer who works with us who works very closely with with me and what what ideas we we can put out there and and some of the stats that you get back um certainly from let me give you an example we interviewed alan shearer uh, at ewood park recently and it had over a hundred thousand views within 24 hours um that's how important I still believe that that the BBC local radio do have. I, I would like to think that we've got credibility still. I would like to think that despite there being various other ways and means to get your football these days, perhaps it's not what it was like in the 80s and 90s where everyone wanted to ring up after every game and have their say because social media has really maybe taken that spot these days. But I would suggest that if you look at the the listening figures on local radio when there is um, cricket, for example, there are a massive, massive audience online for cricket on BBC local radio. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, we can't do league games online on local radio. We can do FA Cup matches. And again, when I get the stats sent to me of how many people have listened to an FA Cup tie online on Radio Lancashire, it makes me think I really, really wish that we had the online rights. But the cost of them um, in this day and age for everyone is is going to be a lot of money. So unless something dramatically changes, we will have to continue as we go. But one day, who knows, could we ever do online league commentaries? Um, it, it remains to be seen. But, you know, with, with things like the red button, I think it certainly doesn't help. That, that the red button exists these days yeah. even though i would i would have to argue in that that having seen it once or twice when i've not been working on a match night is it something that i go out of my way to watch probably not 
Yeah, I think there are so many challenges, as you say, and I think the well, the EFL and the Premier League trying to squeeze as much cash out of every possible package, and you've got the the whole I follow thing. I guess that's why the BBC is, uh, wouldn't be able to get the rights because there there are clubs trying to sell season tickets. Andy Holt is a good um, a good Twitter follow uh, on, on that subject. Uh, clearly, yeah. you know his his model at Accrington Stanley relies on getting people in the ground and spending money in the ground, and he talks a tremendous amount of sense. But it, it does make me wonder: in twenty years' time, when we look back, um, how many people will actually be going into football grounds versus watching on TV? It's uh, it's quite interesting, an interesting one to, to consider, certainly. But what about you personally, what are your as yet unrealized ambitions? Then, what do you hope to achieve before you decide to retire? Oh, dearie me. Well, well, turning 40 this year, it's one of those, maybe one of those watershed years, isn't it? That you think, right, I'm 40 now. I've, I've got 25 years left in work. Um, I've been here 13 years. Uh, I've absolutely every ambition to be here another few years, if they'll have me. Um, and I, I, I'm the same as anyone else, Ian. If, if someone comes to you and says we would offer you double the money that you're being paid we would offer you and your family a lot more security we would offer you this that and the other you have to consider it but um where i am right now i i live very close to where i work um it works for us my wife works here as well so she's the breakfast show producer at radio lancashire so she leaves the house at 4 30 every morning which allows me to take our children to work in the mo- into school in the morning and she can pick them up at the end of the day. Perfect. And I would much rather have a happier family lifestyle and not have an hour and a half drive back from wherever every night from work and, and probably not see my children grow up as much as I am doing now. No, I think that's a very very sensible approach, if I may say so. And if you enjoy what you're doing, as they say, you never work a day I love in your it. life. It's, uh... I love it. I, I, I love it if, you know, if... I, I would say to anybody who wants to get into this profession, you, you need a stroke of luck. You need to have a little bit of ego about you that believes you're good enough to do it. Because if you don't really believe in yourself, nobody else will. And um, and if you do not enjoy what you're doing, if you're covering live sport for a living, go and do something else because a thousands or tens of thousands of people had swapped places with me in a heartbeat. Absolutely. It's one of those things, I think, when you, you see journalists writing um, and he's sort of saying, "Yeah, but you've not paid to go in the ground." <laughs> so yeah, yep. just just take a step back and think about the, the the people that have paid to go through the turnstiles and look at it from from their perspective. That's a very wise word. Now, final question, uh, a special one, and it would be remiss of me not to ask this because uh, Jen Bellamy, one of my uh, fellow BRFCS podcast panelists, um, she has a bit of a penchant, I think it's fair to say, for one Kevin Gallagher. So, what's it like to work with Kevin Gallagher? This is for you, Jen. It's a funny one because um, Kevin and I started in radio in probably the same month. Um, He came to Century Radio when I was just leaving university. Um, I met him in a gym (laughs) in Preston and said, what are you doing these days? And he said, well, this and that, I've just retired. We we ended up working together at Century Radio, uh, became good pals there, and and we've worked together for years and years and years now. I, I can honestly say he, he's one of my best pals. He is someone that um, I, I love traveling to away games with, um, spending time at home games. I love having a pint with him. Um, he coaches my daughter football sometimes. Um, our families are friends. So I, I can honestly say uh, that Kevin is is a, a fantastic, fantastic guy. And and I would also have to throw into the mix here, Ian, that that if you'd have said to me in 1995 when the glorious 
thing happened the day before my first GCSE exam. So oh, I had to take it easy so on the champagne. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> when, when it happened in 1995, if you'd have said to me then that among my friends, and I, and I would call them friends, yeah. are Mark Atkins, Kevin yeah. Gallagher, Jason Wilcox, Colin Hendry, Chris Sutton, um, I, I wouldn't profess that Alan Shearer is because I've, I've met him two or three times and, and I think the world of him. But if you asked it, if you asked him who I was, he wouldn't yeah. be able to tell you. Uh, but I would certainly put those people from the Blackburn Rovers squad of 1995. And then I go further on. And I'd say David Dunn is a friend of mine. Uh, Stephen Reed is a friend of mine. And and these people you keep in touch with and and that's how i consider that that they're friends of mine that that you'll keep in touch with them if one if someone makes a comment on on twitter or whatever you might send them a, a text and say wow do you really mean that or whatever and then and then you end up saying oh how are you we must meet up at some point and all this sort of thing and there's so many of the lads who played at rovers who who i consider friends and and that's that's something that i i, I hold really dear to my heart that that some of these people that that i see as legends i've missed simon garner out there because he's he's exactly the same love garns to bits fantastic guy um love meeting up with him in london for the games down there and the list would go on but but you know that there are there are former players and former managers i must mention gary bowyer as well who who was brilliant to deal with during his time at at rovers he was a, a fantastic guy to deal with and someone uh, that I spoke to yesterday. Still speak to him on a regular basis, um, and you know I, I feel very, very fortunate not just to have um, got a friendship with Kevin, but with with a lot of other people too. Marvelous. Well, all I can say to that is uh, when the barbecue is round your house, <laughs> an invite to that must be a golden ticket. It really must, unless you're a Preston fan, of course. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, hey, there's a there's a few of them who are my mates as well. Don't worry. <laughs> Listen, Andy, that's been terrific. Thanks very much for uh, for giving up some time. I really, really do appreciate it, and it's it's lovely My to get pleasure. a bit of an insight into to, to your career and and where uh, where Radio Lancashire might be going in the future. All the very best, and thanks once again. Remember, you can listen online as well. You can listen again. This is the modern world, folks. You don't just have to be in the Lancashire area now, Ian. Even you in Sheffield can listen. Absolutely, and I was beforehand, so it's absolutely <laughs> tremendous. That's the commercial. We'll leave that in. Uh, that's the quick pro quo for <laughs> giving us the interview. Thanks once again, Andy. Pleasure. Thank you. Here's Bill Arthur now to tell us about the difficulties of keeping in touch and finding out the latest score, especially when you're thousands of miles away from Blackburn. As I logged into iFollow recently to watch a Rovers match, I reflected on how things have changed for the distant supporter. Some fans would probably argue that folk who were labour go to you were not proper supporters, but that's a load of balderdashes as far as I'm concerned. I was brought up as a Rover supporter from a young age, and although I spent most of my life away from Blackburn, I'm still a kid at heart following my hometown team. In fact, when I was at home in the late 50s and 60s, there was little by way of updates for even keeping track of away games. We had Grandstand on BBC on a Saturday and ITV's World of Sport, but I don't recall them giving updates on scores as the goals went in around the grounds. I think we had to wait until after the 4.30 from Sandown Park or some such thing before the teleprinter burst into life at 20 to 5. Yes, 20 to 5. Three o'clock kickoffs in those days had only 10 minutes for half time. If you're wondering what a teleprinter was, it was like watching your computer screen as you type with the letters appearing one by one. 
So the printer would burst into life and the letters and numbers would come up one by one. F-U-L-H-A-M-2 B-L-A-C-K-B-U-R-N-R-O-V-E-R-S And by this time you're holding your breath wondering what will appear on the screen. Sometimes the printer would freeze so it might say Fulham 2 and then freeze for several seconds whilst you yelled at the screen pleading for the score. There was also radio. The light programme as it was then, or Radio 5 Live as it is now, would have commentary on a game, but usually only the second half. And then at five o'clock you would get sports report and the classified results, most famously read by James Alexander Gordon. If you'd missed the grandstand teleprinter, this was where you went for the results. Unlike the teleprinter, you didn't have to wait for the full result to know the outcome of a game. The announcer's intonation told you all. Fulham 2... Blackburn Rovers, yes we've won! Three! Gradually reporting became more up to the minute, but when I left home in 1967 for my first job in Surrey, I was playing in the office football team on Saturday afternoons, so I would never know what was happening until after a game. If I was lucky I'd get a lift home with a player who had a car and a radio, and believe me that wasn't very common. Failing that it would be the latecomers results on the radio at 10 to 6. I was back in Lancashire at the end of 1970 and remained there until 78, so I was once again an Ewood regular and did not have to worry about score updates. However, in 1978 work took me south again. Things were improving by this time for the distant supporter. In addition to radio and TV, we had CFAX and Teletext, so we could get news and scores there, but that could be incredibly frustrating as you waited for screens to refresh all the time, wondering what was happening. Through the late 70s and 80s, radio and teletext were my main ways of keeping up with games that I couldn't get to. But since we were in the second division, and briefly the third, we were not an attraction for radio or television, apart from the odd FA Cup tie. But then in the 1990s, following Rovers remotely suddenly became much easier. I had Sky, and radio had improved with full match commentaries and reports from the matches in the top two divisions. Radio was my preferred medium in the 90s on match days. After a busy working week, there were jobs to be done at home and I could slip my radio into my pocket, put my earphones on and spend Saturday afternoons following Rovers and getting my jobs done. It was great when Rovers were the main commentary match on Radio 5, but there was a downside if the main commentary was another match. Suddenly, Alan Green, or whoever was doing the commentary, would say, and there's been a goal at Teawood and we'll be going there just after we see what happens in this attack. That was terrible. You're now waiting, thinking, for God's sake, just tell us what's happening. Or, there's a penalty at Teawood Park and we'll go over there in just a minute to find out who has the penalty. When I was listening one afternoon, doing some gardening, I had the misfortune, just as the radio said, we're going over to Teawood Park for an update, to cut through the wires on my earphones and didn't hear a thing. Then came the internet. Dial-up internet at home wasn't great for keeping up to date with results. Several goals could have been scored by the time you got a connection, but that would of course change. In 2008 I left the UK to live in Canada. No problem as far as falling rovers was concerned. All the Premier League matches are shown live, including the 3 o'clock kickoffs. But darn it, we then get relegated and championship matches are not on TV here. It's now a case of trying to find a live feed. But if that doesn't work, I can follow the match on the BBC Sports website with live reporting, except that you can go minutes without anything being reported. And then came Twitter. 
Suddenly I get on the spot team news. Pre-match photos from people I follow. Mid-match reports from people I follow. Immediate news from Rich Sharp at The Telegraph and from Rover's official feed and supported videos with action from the game. Suddenly I'm at the match. What's not to like? Well, there is still that frantic need to know what's going on, and if it's a close game, the constant refreshing of Twitter towards the end of a game waiting for updates. It's sounding much like the teletext days. We've come a long way from the days when half-time scores were slotted into boards in the corners at Ewood. The boards would have A, B, C, etc. And you had to buy a programme and refer to your programme to see which was game A and so on. And quite often the scores would not go up until half-time was over. And of course it wasn't foolproof. It could be quite amusing when the wrong numbers were put up against the wrong letters. I wouldn't change things, but a bit of me thinks that the delays and problems in getting the results in those old days increased the sense of anticipation and made the excitement or disappointment a little more intense. And of course all the games were Saturday kickoffs at 3 o'clock, no waiting until Monday night when all the fixtures for match day 26 or whatever were completed to work out your league position. I think the spreading of matches is one of the big downsides of modern football. If you look at last weekend's FA Cup ties, where multiple kickoff times, it was a real force. And it's just a shame that matches are spread over so long now. But there you go, I'm moaning about that. But the plus side was, I was able to watch Newcastle and Rovers in the Cup last weekend. And finally, in part three, our regular podcast panellist Michael Taylor takes some time out to interview the new editor of 442 magazine, Rovers supporter Connor Pope. Well, welcome. This is the BRFCS podcast special edition. And with me is Connor Pope. Connor, hello. Hi, Michael. How are you? Yeah, good. So I've heard you on the Progressive Britain podcast, yeah. a passion that we, we both share for uh, centre-left politics. And But now you're, of course, working at 442 Magazine. Mm. Hopefully you'll be bringing a real blue and white touch to uh, Britain's best-selling monthly glossy football magazine. Absolutely. That is the plan. Uh, every month I'm <laughs> hoping a cover star from uh, you know, Bradley Dack to Charlie Mulgrew. Very good. Tell me about your Rover supporting journey. You grew up in Lancashire. You yeah. Obviously you live down here in London now. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, what, what was your first game, first memory? So... My first game, I was five years old, uh, which sadly was in 1996, uh, so a year after we won the title. Um, and I went to uh, a game just after my fifth birthday, so it was April 96, it was against Wimbledon. And um, I don't really remember this, you know, properly, but I've watched the clip enough times on YouTube of Alan Shearer, he's on the kind of left-hand side of, uh, of the box, I think towards the Darwin end. And he's got his back to goal and a ball's played forward from left back and he takes it down with his right instep kind of towards the D and then just lashes it into the top corner and that was the first live goal that I ever saw wow. and I think at that moment I must have just thought football's probably always like this <laughs> um, so I was completely hooked on football from that from that moment um, sadly I think that was Alan Shearer's last ever Blackburn game yeah. <laughs> and so uh and so it wasn't. It wasn't really like that afterwards. But I was already, you know, it's the, almost like a kind of first hit of heroin kind of thing. I think, you know, I'm always looking for a Roy of the Rovers style. I wouldn't know anything about that. No, but yeah, I, something else I, you want I, I read about it in books. Okay. Um, 
But yeah, I think we won that game three two. Shearer scored two, and Graham Fenton uh, uh, scored the other. Another Rovers great. Yeah, absolutely. He scored. The, was it Newcastle? He scored two against. He did actually. Yeah, a couple be of weeks fair. before that, stopped stopped them winning the title. And of course, we rested Alan Shearer towards the end of that season, so he could have a good run at serving his country. Yeah, for the yeah, yeah. Actually, Graham Fenton on that. I used to work in the Royal Oak Pub uh, in Platgate, and the owner there um, had a dog. And when he got the dog, he said he would name the dog after the next uh, Rovers player to score. And he got it just before that Newcastle game. And so that dog, even when I worked there in about 2009, was called uh, Fenton. And was it last seen in Richmond Park? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was exactly what I thought about when, uh, when I saw that clip. Oh. So, uh, Pauline Rope started in the, in the 90s. Yeah. Um, Fair to say we've had a few upheavals over the years. How often do you get to games now, being based in based in London? Not not all that often. I go to every every London game I can. The only one I didn't get to last season was Jolton because that sold out so quickly. Um, uh, that was because it was right at the end of the season. We went up the we got promoted the week before. Yeah. But so this season I went to uh, Brentford. Sadly, a couple of weeks ago that was um, that could have been better. I mean, the first we'd have left after eight minutes. It was one of the best first eight minutes of, of football I've seen us play in years. Um, I went to Millwall a couple of weeks before that. I, I live right next to the Den, so that was very easy for me. Um, and then I got to QPR earlier in the season at at Ewood because mm-hmm. I was up for a friend's wedding. Um, I took my girlfriend to that. She uh, she's a United fan. She's from North Manchester, and she couldn't believe uh, even even under the Mourinho area she, she seemed to think that uh, that game was particularly arid which she may have had a point it was 88 minutes of absolute crap and then Bradley Dax scoring a penalty and him taking the ball to the corner at every possible moment after that while I stood up and applauded as though it was uh, Ronaldinho well he is Ronaldinho yeah no, he very much is um, so I just want to talk a little bit about that intersection then between between politics and supporting our Rovers because mm. Obviously, you can have a political perspective on, on football. We've had uh, the former Prime Minister and the former Foreign Secretary yeah. as life presidents of our football yeah. club over the years. But the whole politics of football and the issues around ownership, I mean, it, 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 is, it is an issue that comes to the fore mm. all the time. Fan ownership of football clubs, yeah. fit and proper person tests. What's, what's your sort of perspective on a political dimension on what's happened at Rovers over the last few years. Well, so I went to a talk that um, Accrington Stanley owner Andy Holt gave in Parliament um, about a month ago, and you know I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be very aware of uh, Andy's presence on Twitter, and uh, yeah. he's he's pretty good on a lot of these things. He's a really interesting character, and his interesting take on it is that actually the kind of problem with a fit and proper person test is that a lot of these owners who we now rail as being so terrible easily pass this yeah. fit and proper person test. And frankly, it'd be really difficult to find a type of test that they would fail. And when they come in, they generally want to be good owners but make mistakes and they plough in a lot of money and then they realise they're not getting that money back and that's when the problems start because they've made mistakes in terms of judgement, not in terms of funding previous yeah. to that. And then you don't want to keep throwing money down a hole. Um, and basically, for someone else to come in and buy it, 
well, if a club is going, you know, down, then you want to wait until the cheapest possible moment to buy them. So if it, you know, yeah. you'll allow it to get further and further down before anyone comes in, and so you get stuck in a kind of cycle. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point that you know actually most of these terrible owners most of them not all of them but they don't come in with bad intentions to start off with they're just bad owners because they make mistakes and when you make a mistake on that kind of scale then it's a big mistake Um, and actually I kind of started thinking this about Venkis it wasn't necessarily that they are you know bad owners per se they didn't come in as bad owners but Clearly, they made mistakes, and I think they were completely taken for a ride with, you know, the Kentaro and yeah. Jerome Anderson, and basically they had people who came in and went, "You don't know anything about football, but we do. Trust us." Yeah. And uh, their mistake was trusting them, not actually that they came in and didn't really care about the town, which you know I think there were a lot of stories about. Fr- frankly, the fact that they don't know very much about Blackburn, and uh, at times they've seemed slightly disinterested in it but actually I don't think that was the root of the uh, yeah. of the problem there and um, you know the fact that they're still about and we are now in a kind of period of um, stability mm-hmm. is uh, I'm kind of thankful for that when you yeah. you only need to look down the road one way to Blackpool or another to Bolton to see yeah. uh, how much worse actually it could be um, I mean, that was what everybody hoped for at the height of the protests against Venkis was mm. that, um, you know, that, that massive well-known cohort of wealthy Blackburn business people would form a consortium mm. and, and buy them. A, they probably don't exist. Yeah, yeah. And B, look what happened at Bolton and beware of what you wish for. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. I mean, around that period, I was as um, kind of vocally anti-Venkis as anyone. I saw Steve Keane as a symptom of the malaise that was the Venkis mm. rather than anything else. Actually, now I kind of think that Keane was a malaise, was a symptom of a, a slightly different malaise mm. and that it was these agencies that kind of were lining their own pockets uh, and taking, you know, taking the club and the owners for, for an absolute ride along the way. Um, so, I mean, stuff like fan ownership is, is a really important topic. How we kind of get there from where we currently are in this country is really difficult to see, actually. Um, you know, Germany, obviously, you've got great success stories there. And you look at a club like Bayern Munich, actually, which is really interesting. You know, people talk about uh, a lot of the other clubs there and they kind of don't want to focus on Bayern because Bayern is essentially the United of Germany. Yeah. But actually, Bayern's model has been that they, won't, they refuse to run up any debts. Right. which is basically unheard of in top European football um, I, and for them to maintain success while they do it is astonishing but the, part of the problem is that they, it seems that the people who run football UEFA and FIFA they talk about financial fair play and making sure that clubs don't run up debts and they want clubs to be like Bayern but essentially they don't properly punish clubs when this happens uh, you know it goes back to the kind of mid 1980s changes in, in uh, how um, companies can go into administration in, in what is kind of a, a US style mm. business model rather than a, a kind of uh, 
traditionally British business model. It's uh, you know, it's slightly dry legislation, but it is it is quite interesting. And that change meant that actually new owners could come in and try and pay off a bit of debt, but essentially could write the rest of it off without the club going out of. Uh, existence, they could just put it into administration. You lose a yeah. few points, but it's not the end of the world. And then you come back and recoup. Um, whereas a club like Bayern, like made a decision that they would never do anything like that. And so there's all of these decisions being taken at different levels, and it's not always necessarily about fan ownership, but actually about the legislation behind it and the governance of the game as a whole. And so there are a lot of levels of uh, problems in there. I think. And what do you think? you've gained as a supporter through the journey you've been on supporting them you know initially starting in the Premier League when you were quite young mm. and then the next phase you probably are really falling in love with Rovers around presumably Worthington Cup yeah, yeah. second phase of being in the Premier League yeah great team we had but it's actually been quite humbling and rev- reviving last season yeah absolutely I mean um, and it, somehow getting us back in touch with the kind of club we really are I think I think we've got to bear in mind how lucky we were in that period after we got promoted in 2001. That was the longest period we spent in the top flight since 1936. Prior to 1936, obviously, we'd never been relegated. And so actually, since then, that is, in a sense, our most successful period because we were a stable Premier League side. Um, And I'm very lucky to have been a teenager through those years. and I think, um, yeah, the, the, obviously the, the kind of like post-2010 period was really difficult. Um, but last year, especially going to away games, it really was fantastic. The, um, the level of support and, you know, there were a number of grounds where we had more fans than they did. I went yeah. to Oldham away, which again was a terrible yeah. experience football-wise. But the crowd was fantastic. Um, same as Southend, first yeah. game away of the season. Yeah. Again, terrible result, but, but but it was brilliant to see people actually getting into um, a real kind of spirit of uh, this away day fandom um, and building a sense of, uh, uh, I don't know, passion around the club that perhaps had been lost a little bit over yeah. those years. And uh, I thought it was it's really interesting. And I think on, on part it was humbling, but part of it, it was also a recognition that actually in our history this isn't unheard of we've been here before and these these types of clubs we've played before and and actually it was a slight recognition that you know we play at whatever level we're at and uh, and we support them through and through and so obviously I think it it helped enormously that we um, played so so well last season yeah not only lost four or five games yeah I I went to two of them yeah (laughs) (laughs) so tell us about your job here Connor at 442 Magazine in, in, in London. Yeah, so I've just started here after a few years of working in politics. Um, so I'm a digital features editor. So, you know, um, if people have visited 442's uh, website, they'll know that kind of there's uh, quizzes we put up every day. Great. I'm, uh, I'm in charge of that. They, uh, they do phenomenal traffic, I think. Yeah. About, about midday every day, there were men across the land, um, and, and women, sorry, yeah, that was... That was a very sexist slip of the... But there are certainly people across the land who um, kind of log over and, uh, and uh, 
Go on, so what's today's score? Give us a recent one. Exactly. Um, so today's was name every French player that's played in the Premier League this season. Right. Uh, it's one of those we have to fill it in. Oh yeah, yeah. And so you can't uh, spell it wrong. Yeah. Last last week we had one about um, the last fifty players to score in a City Chelsea game, which included uh, brilliant bits like Paul Dickov, um, who you know I remember I remember well from uh, from Rovers days, oh, chasing bags around the pitch. Yeah, but also we we do kind of. Um, interesting stuff especially around European football or, or or just kind of stories that are in the news yeah. that wouldn't necessarily fit into the monthly magazine and so uh, no I'm really enjoying it it's really interesting yeah and what's your kind of mission at 442 to uh, talk to fans is it to broaden their understanding of world football because of, you know if you read the daily newspapers or um, spend time on social mm. media people are very very focused on their own club or very just focused on the Premier League. Yeah. It's real dominance of that in this country. Is, a, is your target market people who look beyond that to appreciate wider football, not just in this country, but in um, there's a, like the Champions There's League. a bit of that. There isn't, um, there isn't particularly a mission to broaden no. anyone's horizon. But essentially, I think um, uh, football journalism in this country is in a really brilliant state. Right. I think... Um, enormously improved over the last couple of decades even if you look at match of the day for instance I yeah. think actually the the type of analysis that they have now uh, for what is a very general audience this you know they're not speaking to a narrow uh, you know football minded audience particularly um, but they the analysis they bring of games um, has improved incredibly I think people just expect a lot more of football journalism in terms of its analysis of tactics and trends and that sort of thing and so actually it's trying to deliver high quality journalism to people who want to read that because clearly that is a growing market on a day-to-day basis and and so it's not necessarily kind of regurgitating the news because there's so many places to get that now and actually it's trying to dig a little bit deeper than that and so often it's the Premier League just because it is still the most popular league in the world and you'd be stupid not to cover it while it's on your doorstep but definitely European football and uh, broadening out of it and um, and certainly I'd really like to cover um, football league more and women's football better especially right. in the run up to the Women's World Cup this summer yeah. where England have a great chance of uh, winning and they've got a really kind of likeable squad there's a, you know, similarities with the England men's team in that but also going to go into it as one of the favourites and it's only in France so unlike the last World Cup where a lot of the games are on in the middle of the night, all the games are going to be on at kind of good hours for yeah. a British audience. So I think this summer we're going to see um, a massive uptake in that. And and also the women's uh, Premier League has just become pre- professionalised for the yeah. first time. Um, and so actually I think it's going in a really good direction. I think there's going to be a really big audience there. Rovers ladies, by the way, I don't think have lost a game this season, have they? No, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And, and, and the total scandal that they weren't allowed into. Yeah, no, was, it was for United, wasn't it? Yeah. Because they set up a team for the first time. But yeah, they were absolutely smashing the league. I nearly, I tried to, I nearly went to see us away in the cup at West Ham. Um, but uh, we lost that game, so it was slightly thankful, uh, <laughs> given, given they've won every other game, pretty much. <laughs> Right, that's been great, Connor. Uh, let's do a quick fire round now. I'll uh, sure. th- throw some throw some questions at you. Yeah, um, you're not anticipating. So, a uh, current Rovers squad favorite player, uh, Danny Green. Right, holds yeah. a ball ever so well. Yeah, all time Rovers f- player, uh, two guy. Right, um, favorite ex Rovers player who's a pundit. 
Oh, Alan Shearer, definitely. Yeah, yeah. we've just done a piece of Match of the Day, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we've been out there this week, yeah. Yeah, um, most memorable game you've been to? Oh, um, the first one that jumps to mind is probably the one you should go with, uh, the League Cup final. Uh, I loved going to the Millennium Stadium, great day out, loved it. Yeah, and finally, favourite Rovers kit? Um, oh, you know what? I bought I bought a Rovers shirt uh, a couple of weeks ago off ClassicFootballShirts.com, yeah. and it's the ninety-two to ninety-four away shirt, the red and black stripes. Oh yeah, um, with you know made by Asics and McEwen's Lager. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think it's beautiful. I love all the home shirts of that period, um, and it's home shirts generally that I'm much more attached to emotionally. I still went. The one that we got relegated in actually a few years ago, the Umbro one, where we didn't have a sponsor. I think yeah. it's beautiful in its simplicity. Yeah. But I'm very currently very fond of uh, my new away shirt. Uh, very good. Yeah, very good. And uh, just share for the benefit of the uh, listeners to the BRFCS podcast the quiz question that you stumped Alison Campbell <laughs> with on your last appearance on the Progressive Britain podcast. That is my other favourite match I went to. I asked Alistair Campbell what links. Uh, Matt Janssen, Craig Short, Craig Hignett, and Steve Davis. Steve Davis, and he ummed and awed for ages. He just couldn't get it. And once I revealed that the answer was that they were all of the scorers in Blackburn Rovers five, Burnley nil on April first, two thousand, he uh, he called me a bastard several times, <laughs> which I think was a, was a, a you know a little kind of. Um, Life achievement ticked off there, frankly. Yes, and I think the appreciation in the in the listenership of the Pro- Progressive Britain podcast uh, of that particular joke was one. Yeah, which no, was probably me. You tweet, yeah, you tweeted me about getting that joke, and I was I was very pleased that one one listener appreciated that because I really don't think any of the others did. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, great to talk to you, Connor and um, RT at Labore. You're listening to the BRFCS Podcast, the only podcast approved to cover the 2018-2019 season by the New York City Rovers. Don't forget to check out www.brfcs.com. I have to say, the <laughs> photograph of you in 2006 makes you a look baby. like a 13-year-old work experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> BBC well using child slave labour, but yeah, <laughs> all good stuff. Right, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll press on. By the way, massive thank you to Joe Bamford, a BRFCS forum member, and his band The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music used in this episode. I hope you'll look them up on Facebook, and if they're playing live near to you, well, go and see them. 